Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. Hey everybody, Brian Sexton. You know what's really important to me when I do business with a company is trust and transparency. I've been telling you now for a good while about my buddy Damon Burton and his company, SEO National, because trust and transparency are just as important to them. You know, for the last 15 years in the search engine optimization space, they have been leading the way and serving people tremendously well. Now, for those of you that don't know what SEO is, it stands for search engine optimization. It helps you show up higher on Google searches so that folks that are looking for what you have find you quicker. And you know what's really encouraging? More revenue, more sales, growing your business. Do me a favor, get in touch with Damon and his team today at SEO National at 855-736-6285 or go to seonational.com and get your free quote and tell them you heard it on the Intentional Encourager podcast. I hope you're ready because here comes a dynamite conversation on the Intentional Encourager podcast. And welcome into the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you for joining us again today. I'm going to the Wayback Machine, personally. Uh, This guy that I've got on with me today, he is an educator, a career educator, and an author. He's the author of the book, No Teacher Left Burned Out. And I love that title. But most importantly, John and I went to high school together. He was two years behind me. I was in the class of 1990 at South Point High School. And John was in the class of 1992 at South Point High School. He was a great athlete, basketball player. I, I, I barely, you know, I barely made the baseball team in high school. This guy was an athlete, though. And it's an honor to welcome an old friend, John Maynard, to the Intentional Encourage Podcast. John, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great. It's good to see you, Brian. It's good to see you, John. I tell you what, man, I, it, you know, I look back at those days, and I'll start here. I look back at those days fondly because we grew up in a little town in southern Ohio. And I was telling somebody the other day, I grew up in Burlington. You grew up in South Point. I was and, in Burlington as well. Yeah, you were in Burlington as well. I forgot about that. That's right. Yeah. I forgot about that. Thank you for correcting me. The the little town we grew up in, I was telling somebody last week, I did not realize how much history we grew up around and had no idea. You and I have a mutual friend, Chris Saunders. I'm going to have Chris on the Intentional Courage podcast because Chris has done a lot to bring that history to the forefront. And so I want to start there. When you think about where we grew up and things like that, how has that shaped you growing up where you did? And, and how has that helped you to make an impact on young people the way you've made an impact? And I'm asking, I'm starting a little bit different, but I, but I feel like I want to start there with you. How has that, where we grew up, shaped the way you, you impact young people today? Well, you know, they say the, the Maynards invaded Lawrence County in the 70s. <laughs> we, came, we came out of Logan County, and, and of course, we were coal miners, and, and we're a little bit of trouble. Uh, Burlington, of course, was where the part I lived in was called the Cabbage Patch, and mm-hmm. the homes were cheap. I mean, and when I say cheap, I mean they were inexpensive, and they were, you know, many of them were broken down, but the people tried their best to take care of what they had. And of course, we had you know one of the only communities with diversity in, in Southern Ohio, and so I grew up around you know uh, African American children just like you did, and you know uh, the Spanish families would move in, you know Spanish speakers, but it, we had that diversity, and and we didn't really have any sort of conflict over it because we all were in the same place, you know we all had the same. Uh, issues with uh, having food. Uh, a lot of us were on public assistance. Uh, my father was disabled, could not read or write. Uh, we did not take public assistance. Uh, we He worked with his hands. So whatever uh, he could do to make money, he did. You know, it might be uh, digging a ditch or cutting grass. And, and my mom was actually uh, fairly intelligent. You know, she had went to uh, school later in her life and she was able to become a secretary 
And between those uh, two incomes, we was able to make it. Mm -hmm. I, never, I never went without food. I mean, it was sometimes the electric was cut off. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, in the neighborhood, all the kids hung out together. And even though there was multiple bus stops in, in Burlington and the part of town I lived in, everybody went to the same bus stop mm -hmm. first thing in the morning. You know? Now, part of that was, uh, you know, I was a... I was somewhat of a troubled kid, uh, like many of us. Uh, I struggled in school. Uh, I wasn't necessarily, I had good parents, but I wasn't necessarily taught that school was for me. Uh, I was probably raised to be a little bit skeptical of authority. And I was retained two times early in school. <laughs> and as I went through school, you know, I was in a lot of fights. You know, I, if I, this is not an exaggeration. I, I may have been near a thousand fights in my life, you know? Man, yeah. And uh, it was actually Mr. Cook who we had in Burlington. Uh, I'd been in so much trouble. I'd be suspended or I'd be paddled or I'd be put in detention. And, you know, there's always going punitive, punitive, punitive. Why? Well, it didn't really phase me. Uh, no one ever really reached out to me. Um, but Mr. Cook, who's a disciplinarian, he was done with me. Uh, I'd gotten in trouble or something. I don't know where I was. And he says, you know what? I'm done. He says, tonight you're going out for basketball. I said, what? He says, you're going out for basketball. I've already taken care of it. We got the fees. Have your mom have you at tryouts. And I'm not going to uh, give you in-school suspension, which I kind of hated. <laughs> I said, so if I go to basketball tryouts tonight, I don't have to do in-school suspension. He says, that's right. So I go and I get on the team. And... I made it maybe two games in the season and I'd gotten a couple of fights and then they asked me not to play that year. But it bothered me because this guy had invested in me mm -hmm. and, and I, I kind of laid him down. And I, it was the only sport I ever tried. And my dad thought I was doing it because I was trying to get out of work with him. <laughs> so that summer I I practiced. Now, I didn't really have anybody teach me how to play basketball. I didn't have access to anybody that knew basketball. My father didn't ever do sports. He always worked on cars and stuff like that. So I just kind of went out and shot around and made it my own, my own shot. Mm -hmm. And the next year I went out and I finished the season, did pretty well. And then uh, a man named Brent Mayo, who was a, actually his father was assistant principal at high school, saw me out, saw I was a big kid and took me to Chesapeake an open gym and taught me to shoot the basketball right. But, you know, the, the long story is that this, this principal knew that I needed another outlet, that I needed to be around other people. And rather than just punish me and send me on again and follow the routine, he, he took a second, and he was a very stern person. Yeah, I remember him. But he, had a, he actually had a very big heart. And it's interesting because years later, he had, you know, he... He hired me as his principal. This is a guy that had to deal with me through school. Yeah. He actually dealt with me one time walking out of the school and going home in the middle of the day. So, I, you know, I, I was in a lot of trouble. I believe by the time I was in eighth grade, I received, according to my records, something near 500 corporal punishments, 180 days of school suspensions. And I had visited the group home twice uh, for, for being in trouble. Uh, so I, I get through, I make it through middle school and it's the sports that, you know, kind of kept me, didn't completely keep me out of trouble, but kind of kept me out of trouble. And, you know, of course I had a lot of coaches and people starting to reach out to me because I was becoming a better athlete. So now they're like, we need to get this guy out of trouble. So they're investing time talking to me and I, and I can't name any one coach that didn't do better. You know, they all did well. They all spoke to me. And so my freshman year of high school, I started to make the decisions that I wasn't going to be in trouble. Because first of all, the coaches said, if you get in trouble, you're off the team. Mm -hmm. you know, we had uh, Coach Huckabee had come in and, and, and Coach Smith, which was our football coach later, was Coach Schrickle. Uh, and then Randy Smith was a tremendous man. His uh, brother, uh, Rusty Smith, coached me in track. And all very positive people, always reaching out to me. Well, the thing I remember about Huck is Huck came in in our senior year, yeah, 1990. You were a sophomore. And what I remember about Huck was 
Huck was he he had come from Marshall. Mm-hmm. He he wanted to stay in the area because he had two boys, Ricky and Andy. Ricky was a year behind you. He was in my sister's class in '93. Right. And then Andy was a couple years behind. He wanted to stay in Huntington. And he had gone through a situation where um had his first losing season and and he was like 15 and 15 and they got rid of him. And at the time, the superintendent of our school system, George York, made a pretty bold move and made Huck one of the highest paid administrators in in the in the school system. Mm-hmm. And so Huck came in. I thought I might play basketball my senior year until I went to a couple open gyms and a guy you know well, a guy named Mark Perky, kind of took oh. me to school. Yeah. And uh, Huck told me, Huck, yeah, Huck was like, well, because I knew I knew myself and a, guy, and, and a guy you know well, Marvin Lane. And for yeah. those listening, I none of these names are going to mean anything to you. But to me and John, they, they mean a lot. But – I knew me and Marvin were going to sit on the bench. We were going to be down toward the end of the bench. So, you know, I, and I had it. My dad made me get a job at at Foodland in, in right there next to Kmart in, uh, in Burlington. That. Yeah, I did, yeah, I yeah. So I, I had to work. So I and I wanted to play baseball. So, but you're right. You know, Huck was a guy that really changed our school because, um, you know, Huck was a guy that. We, we, our school at that time was about eight years old and we had the old tartan. Remember the old tartan basketball floor, that rubber basketball floor? Yes, it's terrible. It was awful. <laughs> Huck had a guy at Marshall named Jeff Guthrie who had a stress fracture because Marshall had that same floor. A lot of schools did. A lot of high schools and colleges did in the 80s. And Huck came in and he got them to, to put down a wood floor in our, in our gym. And it cost like, Twenty-five or thirty thousand dollars, but Huck's like, we're not playing, we're not playing on this. So Huck was really, and once you, if you don't mind, talk about that impact because you played a couple years for Huck, and right. and Huck really had an impact on me, even though I didn't play. Well, um, he came in. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Coach Huckabee came in, and he was larger than life. He had these amazing suits, and you know, and he was very. Uh, very vocal. He could give amazing speeches. And the first thing he'd tell you is that, you know, I never really played basketball, but I understand uh, people and I understand how to coach basketball. And he focused, of course, you know, I've had many great coaches that taught me skill, but, but coach, how could be actually focused on you as a person? And he respected you as a person. And he knew I was a tough kid and he challenged me. on. You know, he, 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 explain to me yes john i'm trying to get you upset because if i can get you upset that shows me you can't handle the stress on the court you can't handle the stress in life so everything he did was to reach back to say okay this is not just about basketball guys this is about life and one of the big impacts he had on me this sounds silly was he was the first person to ever get me wear a suit i still wear him every day and he was like we're going to have all the players shaved i want you looking sharp your hair combed um don't come to the school stinking (laughs) yeah and i want you to dress you know somewhat professionally on the game of the day on the day of the game and he asked us to wear a suit well i didn't own a suit nobody in my family owned a suit so we went actually down to goodwill and we found something that fit kind of decent well i wore that suit (laughs) probably two days a week different time because that's all i had tuesdays and fridays high school basketball (laughs) nights yeah but you know it was it was that whole attitude um that you're going to be a better person and he also raised the gpa requirement the state of ohio at that time required a 2.0 gpa i believe may even been lower than that Mm -hmm. and he says in order to play for me you have to have a 3.0 so he he actually which later ended up making much better grades. We'll talk about the second. But he was the first one to make me do more than just stay barely, barely eligible. Because I did not want to hand him a report card with just that minimal mark. So I started trying a little harder in school, getting homework done, things that I didn't do before, developing habits. 
I wasn't necessarily at that time internally motivated yet to where I was doing this for my own benefit. I was motivated by getting better at basketball, but I didn't want to disappoint, disappoint coach. So he required it. We had a 3.0 and there were, there were, guys that I played with that never in their life would probably made a 2.0 and now they're having to make B's and A's and, you know, and we're studying. And, and if you, if you were not ready academically, you had to miss the first part of practice um, and you had to do a study hall and then you had to make up that practice after, which was running. Mm -hmm. So what happens is you don't show your basketball skills running. You show you're in shape. So you, you end up sitting the bench because you did not get to execute the drills and the, and the, and the plays and things. So Coach Huckabee had a huge impact on that whole school. And I think all the young men. Uh, yeah, he's well, one of the Hey, everybody, Brian Sexton here. The new year is upon us, and you may be sitting there thinking, hey, I would really love to pay off some debt, or I would like to save for that dream vacation. Maybe you want to buy a new car. Whatever it is you want to do financially in the coming year, let me give you a great piece of intentional encouragement and something to think about that might help you do it. Products for Profit. Now, this is a course taught by my good friend, Joe Hart, who's been a guest on the Intentional Encourager podcast and has told his story how reselling changed his life. And you know what, folks? It could do the same thing for you too. It's really simple. Reselling is basically buying a product and then reselling it online for more money. And Joe is going to take you through the steps and show you how to do this either part-time or maybe as some of his students have done, take this full-time as well. Go to coachjoe89.gumroad.com backslash L backslash premium PFP. And oh, by the way, this group is going to help you find leads of products that are profitable right now, give you all kinds of great intentional encouragement, and you're going to be surrounded by a community of people that are going to want to see you be successful in the reselling game. Again, go to coachjoe89.gumroad.com backslash L backslash premium PFP and tell him you heard about it on the Intentional Encourager podcast. And now let's get back to more great conversation here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. And, and, and something I remember was one of the first open gyms that he ran a kid got 20 bucks stolen out of their, their pants pocket in the locker room and Huck found out about it and, and he cussed us and threw us all out of the gym. Yeah. He cussed yeah, you, you know, but he was from Ruston, Louisiana. He had come, he was an assistant coach at Louisiana state under Dale Brown, legendary coach Dale Brown, and then came to Marshall and then came to our school but you're right. What I remember about Huck was I didn't play basketball. I was the sports editor of the paper, of our school paper. But Huck would let me just sit in his office and just talk and pick his brain mm -hmm. about a lot of stuff. And that's what I remember. And there, that, the reason I wanted to start there, John, is because education, You and I love where you, you led us so beautifully in the conversation. The impact of education – then is still impacting you today in your late forties mm -hmm. and what you're trying to do now with helping kids. Let's talk about the last couple of years though. This has been a real challenge for a lot of educators in the last couple of years around COVID, especially when, you know, we were going and, and my son is a junior at Marshall and he was having all kinds of difficulties because he's used to in-person mm -hmm. learning does very well in in-person learning and now it's all virtual what were some of the challenges you were facing as an educator an administrator in education around the pandemic and what was a lesson that you took from it that you learned that you'll carry with you uh because it feels like we're we're out of this thing it feels like we're we're finally over the hump but what's one lesson that you'll carry forward throughout the rest of your career well it, it's seems complicated to some people trying to figure out you know where this where this all go where, what did we do what what did we actually do with children um i like to equate it to you know i was always told you never really know how what a person's like until you're in a fight and when you're in a fight you have to 
You have people who react. You have people who just freeze and you have people who run. And I've always been one of those people that, you know, I'm going toward the fight. And I felt like this was the first, I mean, we're, we're, we're always challenged in, in our career, uh, especially the places that I work. I'm, battle, I'm battling illiteracy and I'm bat, battling poverty everywhere I go. You know, the, the lessons we teach and, and, and the, the motivation we give the kids will help them overcome those things. Well, this was a, a, another fight. This was a big fight. Uh, and yeah, there for a while, you had no choice. You had to go home. The school had to shut down. And that happened really kind of abruptly. And I, and in, in this situation, I managed preschools. And I felt that it was important that we stay in contact with these children because uh, when you grow up, I'm not saying this is true for all poverty, when you grow up in poverty or you grow up around people who might be dealing through stress and there's reasons sometimes you're in poverty, it might be that they're working poor, but it also could be other things. And, and you're in that stressful environment and maybe those people aren't getting to work now. You know, they got sent home without checks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they had to wait for the government to, to start getting... And, and, and those kids are back in some of these environments that we know they come from, you know, maybe their parents are, are dealing with some sort of dependency. Uh, there could be a domestic issue and they're there all day now. And we were their one place of safety. I want to make sure that we still reached out to those kids. And so I, I talked to the teachers, you know, what can we do? So we, as quickly as we could, we prepared packets for them to go. We made phone calls to talk to them. You know, class was not only about learning your ABCs, but it was about just having a conversation with the kid and the parent. Mm -hmm. Because the parents were now becoming the quasi-teachers, and they were trying to do things that, you know, they think they're doing the right thing. But it was very, very difficult for children uh, because they didn't have that everyday contact. They didn't have that everyday lunch. They didn't have peers to, to, to look at. One of the things that really scares me is, uh, have you ever heard of the blank face stuff? Mm -hmm. Okay, in a blank face study, you know, they, they have a baby and it's interacting with the mom and and um, the mom goes blank face and it creates anxiety in the baby, right? Well, we, we found that, that children that stare at iPads all day are basically having the same reaction as a, a baby in the blank face study. So we had kids at home that were learning social skills from devices, watching YouTube, playing video games, not interacting with other people. Well, you, everything that you do at an early age and even older age, you have these neural pathways that you develop. You know, your, your, your social emotional pathways come from interacting with people. You know, when do I smile? When do I laugh? When do I get excited? Well, John, that's I'm a good point. And I, forgive me for jumping in there, but but you, you're bringing up something really powerful there. And, and it's, you, you, I love what you just said there, learning social skills from devices. And, and a, a lot of adults are falling into that same pattern as well because we've forgotten, and I've said this on this podcast before, and I'll say it again in this conversation, we have forgotten how to have a civil discourse between two people, whether they agree or they disagree, and, and especially if they disagree. We've almost kind of become, and forgive me for using this analogy, but we've almost become like two monkeys just throwing poop at each other. And, and it's just, it's, it's become, that's why social media has become in some respects, the cesspool that it's become is because we're learning social skills from watching people rant about things that they have no business ranting about or, or calling someone out when they really have no business calling them out publicly and things like that. When you talk about learning social skills from devices, when, when, when you're checking in with those kids, how important was it? What was some of the, let me, let me ask it this way. What was the feedback that you were getting from parents around those check-in calls and things like that? Because I would have to think that would have been huge for parents just to be able to plug into somebody and going, I don't know how you guys do this. I'm struggling or things like that. What were some, what were some of the feedback you got? Well, the, the thing is that children many times will behave different at school than they will at home. 
because you become used to your environment. So some, in many cases, you'll find that the children actually do a little bit better. That's cool, especially early years. I've been at every level of education. So I've been from elementary, preschool, all the time. And, you know, there are cases that's the opposite. And, and the, the parents were asking a lot of advice about, you know, how do you get them to listen? What do you do? So there was this nice little lesson being taught to parents about this is how you get children to listen. This is how you speak to them. You know, this is how you, you get them from point A to point B. Uh, because what happens is when you're trying to educate someone and you're not trained, you're going to fall back on, you know, maybe even your personality type. So, you know, you, you might have someone who's just barking at these kids and, and, and these children because they're trying their best, but they don't know how to communicate to that child. Maybe they're getting frustrated. You know, my wife is, is, is a wonderful person. She's very nice and sweet and she's a neonatal nurse and she can work. But when it comes to, you know, working with a nine-year-old boy she can become very frustrated and irate you know this is a lady with master's degree. Mm -hmm. you know just because you've learned don't mean you're gonna teach so we were able to share with them some ideas uh, about how to make this work and so i thought the phone calls were, were nice and and I, and I thought the zoom was was better but there's there's more to be gained by the in-person so even though we tried the best we could I felt like we we weren't able to reach the kids the same as we are now. And, and, and you mentioned iPads. You got to think too. Uh, depending on where you live, I know where we're from. You, you start looking even at like your food sources. When you go to school, you got a slightly better food source. Mm -hmm. When you are on a pandemic, you're getting food from what's open. Uh, local gas station. A dollar general which is everywhere you know you're eating pre-packaged food you're eating you're not eating the best food you're not eating healthy things and your brain is developing from that so now we've got kids in situations where they're isolated not around their friends they're learning emotions off ipads you know the whole echo chamber things going on um it's actually <laughs> hurting their focus because when you were a kid and you did imaginary play, right? You had to think of the things in your mind and you mm -hmm. had to hold an image. Well, now that image is held for me by the, the iPad. I'm manipulating something, but I'm not having to create it. So it's 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 actually damaging their, their ability to remember and to create. So you take kids now that, that have been through this and you say, all right, let's go out and play a game. They'll stand and look at each other. Mm -hmm. it, now it'll eventually come back. Oh, we need to play pretend. But they're used to having everything in their mind led for them. Like this is this is the steps I take. Well, I'm doing it on this. Instead of thinking, okay, we're gonna we're gonna play wiffle ball, but we don't have a wiffle ball, so I'm gonna take an apple and tape it. We don't have a bat, but we're gonna use that metal pipe. I mean, someone almost gets an eye put out. Mm -hmm. But you created a game, or you just made up a game. So we had two years of children, and my biggest concern was the kids who didn't have uh, access to school as form as iPads and maybe didn't have access to the food and stuff. And they're now back in those homes without peers, without teachers helping. So there's a lot of social emotional issues that I think that's gonna arise out of this. Well, here's the thing too, John. Is that and 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 I'm glad you brought up teachers because I wanted I wanted to pivot there for for a minute. You know, technology is great, and and I remember years ago, and you might not remember this, but I, I remember it. I I was an admissions officer for a college, and and I came to South Point when you were the principal there, because we did some in class presentations. You took me to some of the classrooms, and mm -hmm. you said, "Hey, man, we've got these whiteboards." And, and it was a phenomenal school. It was like, man, this, this is great for, for my hometown. This is, this is fantastic. And, and they were the interactive whiteboards and things like that. And, and technology is great. But I feel like when we grew up and the teachers that we were around that, that create, that, that were, that were, and I, and I want to use the word, they were intentional in their creativity and how they delivered a lesson plan. 
how they delivered education. I, I can still think back 35 years ago, and, and I'll share one with you, a, a, an educator that, that we lost in the last few years was our was my high school physics teacher and 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 uh trigonometry teacher henry cook yes excellent. and henry i remember my senior year excellent. we we pulled we pulled our catcher mike walden out a guy you played basketball with mm -hmm. and and mr cook said he said he called me by my my childhood nickname he said bucky he said i want you to we're going to demonstrate the bernoulli principle and he <laughs> said you're going to go throw curveballs to mike in the gym <laughs> and that's how that's but but again it took that creativity and yeah. mr cook was was all of five foot six yeah. but but now as i look back he was a giant of a man to me as far as the impact that he had on me how do do educators today with all the the technology advantages that that are that exist today how do educators continue to make that kind of impact that lasts 10 15 20 25 30 years how did how do teachers do that today with 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 seemingly far more challenges in in reaching students and impacting students today well to, to get to that i'm going to tell you a story about how I changed. What made me become a teacher? And it's a it's a teacher we had. It's Rob Willer. I was in Rob Willer's class by accident. I thought I was signed up for an advanced English class. So the very first thing I did was I was like, Mr. Willer, nothing against you, but I have to stay eligible. So I'm gonna drop this class. He says, You're not dropping the class. I was like, I have three days, so I'm gonna drop the class. So I go down to the counselor says, you can't drop the class, Mr. Willer won't let you. I didn't even know this guy. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna go in the class. Well, you know, he, he, he was kind and he was funny and he was very creative and he put us in group work, which was a nightmare for me to do. And one day he was doing this, uh, this quiz and he says, you get extra credit points for everyone of these questions you answered right. So I'm full of useless information. I know that. And I start answering all these questions right. And he goes, John, come here. I want to talk to you. He says, tonight uh, we have quiz ball practice after school. I want you there. <laughs> so Mr. Wheeler, I said, don't make fun of me, man. You know, I'm John Math. He says, no, you just answered all the questions that people missed last night. So I'm there with some of the very bright students we have in the school. And so he saw something in me. And I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to be on the quiz bowl team, my GPA's got to get better. And that's when I decided I was going to make straight A's from now on. And I said, no matter what, my homework's going to be finished, no matter what. And I started reading books ahead of time. I thought, just like sports, right? You know, I was like, well, if I won't be on the quiz bowl team, I can't have this guy having 4.9 and I'm having a 2.9. You know? Hey, I was on the quiz bowl team. I was <laughs> yeah. the dumb guy on the quiz bowl team. I was the current yeah. events and sports guy on the quiz bowl team. You know, well, you got to have, you got to have one guy on the team, John, that brings up the rear. And that was your boy here. Well, I, I brought he up the me, rear. He made me answer. Like all the answers came through me. I was yeah. fast on the buzzard. So I would screen all the answers. I was the leader of the group. And uh, we went undefeated, and it was, a, it was a great event. Well, he also, in that time of teaching, he, he got me in scores competition. He had me tested for this new thing. And I remember going home, I said, Dad, they need you to sign this paper. And my dad, my dad couldn't write. I didn't realize it, but he had always had my mom sign stuff. And he says, what is it? And he said, I don't know, something called tag. They're going to create this tag thing. They want me to take this test. So I took this test, and I ended up, you know, testing gifted. This is Mr. Willer doing all this stuff. And he says, this is when he got me. He said, John, tomorrow you're teaching the lesson. I said, what? He says, this is what you're covering. It was like tenses, like verb tenses or something. And I said, I teach lesson. He says, you teach that lesson. You're done. This he says, you're done. This, it wasn't semester, but this quarter. I said, what do you mean? He says, you have an A. I said, if I teach this, he says, you'll have an A. That's the deal. But you got to teach the lesson. So I get to teach the lesson. And I start to open up. I never opened up before. And 
when I get to the end of the lesson, it's quiet. A guy that we had a friend, his name was Pookie, stood up and started clapping. So that was great. And everybody started clapping. They, they were in shock. I was in shock. I walked over to Mr. Willard. He says, you're a teacher. I said, how do you know? He says, God chose your profession before you, you did. Wow. And uh, when he passed away, you know, I, I'd made a pact that I would, I would prove him right. And so when you're asking this question about, you know, and I actually talk about this in my book, you know, burnout comes from focusing on things, focusing on state tests, focusing on a computer, focusing on a textbook. If the textbook was that valuable, we just lay it down in the, in the, in the classroom, let it teach, right? Teaching is a personal thing. We put this emphasis on state tests and everywhere you go, people are talking about percentages. Well, 70% and 25%. And I go, who is the 70%? What's their names? What's their parents' name? This is where we're losing people. We have to realize that teaching is a social thing. It's a person business. It's like sales. It comes from that chemistry. Could Mr. Willer have done that from a computer screen at his house? Would he have been able to really get to look me in the eye every day and start picking up that this guy has something going on? He got that from being around me and talking to me every day and asking stories about my mom and my dad and taking an interest in me and realizing that he could reach me and realizing that I was in tune with him. Mm -hmm. We're sitting here talking and, you know, I, I got a good sense, but it's different than you see me every day. Hey, John, how you doing? Every day, meet me up there. Hey, how you doing, John? What's going on? I asked you at the ball game last night. It's people business. It's people. And I, I, I equate it to this. When we look at Da Vinci, we don't go look at his paintbrush. We say, oh, look at that paintbrush. That was awesome. That was a beautiful paintbrush. No, you look at his art. Paintbrush is a tool. Testing is a tool. Computers are a tool. Teaching is a calling. Teaching is more than just the tool you use to do it. And we're getting caught up to where we think we're going to set people, people in front of computers. I just told you, just like the blank face stuff. We're not learning emotion. We're not learning. We can't have civil discourse. We get our echo chambers. We get our isolated YouTube subscriptions. Mm. We listen to the same things over and over. It takes people to come together. And when you talk about having an impact, that long-term impact, I actually talk about this. It's the story of Alexander. You know, Alexander the Great, his teacher was Aristotle. You know that? Mm -hmm. Alexander the Great, you know, he he spread his culture and influence. And one of the places he influenced was a place called Rome. And then Rome, you know, would rise up and and spread his culture and, and, and a young rabbi named Jesus uh, was raised in the time of Rome's spread. And then he, he went on to spread his word. And then eventually Constantine came in from the Roman empire that's helped spread Christianity everywhere. And then, you know, then from that, you know, Great Britain, Great Britain rose up and, and they started to do well. And then all of a sudden now you had the United States with the eagle flies everywhere, leaves the world. Some of these lessons we teach get passed on and we don't see the end result of it. You know, the lessons that the culture was passed on like that, you know, the lessons that the influence of Aristotle went through Alexander, which helped change society. You don't know if you're teaching Alexander the Great. Mm -hmm. You don't know what the end of that that's going to be. And if you're not in touch with that person and you're not, and I believe that we all have a soul and you can feel that soul, then you're missing the opportunity to change things forever. You change one kid, one kid. And my kids are spoiled. Seriously, they're spoiled. They got a nice home. Uh, they don't have to worry about eating beans every day. They got a choice. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right thing to do. You know, where are we, we going to eat? Where are we going to eat today? Like, yeah. Ask that question. 
Well, John, here's the thing that I'll say, and and I'm wearing my Marshall class ring. The reason I'm wearing a Marshall class ring is because of Rob Wheeler, the same guy that had an impact on you, said, I know you want to go to Marshall. There's a scores competition. I'm going to help you in this competition. And I won three events and got a, got a tuition waiver to Marshall. Changed my life. You know, I, and, and so, you know, and then five years later, after changing majors, I, I graduate, you know, I get my degree, um, finish, and then I had to take one class. So I, you know, I, I have a degree from Marshall University today because of Rob Wheeler. The same guy and Rob, we called him Uncle Rob. He's been dead now for almost 30 years. I know. But that impact is still there. It's still, and, and as long as we live, that impact will still be there. I've got to ask you about the book. What prompted you to write the book? And what was that, that V8 moment for you? What I call it a V8 moment. I went through it with my book where I had a moment of like, I started to write a sales book and I got halfway through it. And my V8 moment was, this is not a sales book. This is a book about what my dad taught me about connection. What was that V8 moment for you like when you wrote your book? I might've just had it. <laughs> this book, it's not, it wasn't really meant to be a book. I was doing workshops at High University, and I would I do this thing called Country Boys, where we looked at uh, young men going through poverty, and then I collaborated with uh, PBS to have these boys that was in a documentary called Country Boys uh, come share their story with my class, and we talked about the you know what might be the considered the culture of poverty, how things are in common, like you know someone who might be living inner city Detroit poverty has the same things in common as someone from Appalachia, you know it's all about haves and have-nots, et cetera. Well, through this discussion, you know, it, everyone kept wanting, they, they just wanted to keep talking about, well, we got this, you know, new mandate, state test, no child left behind, you know, no matter, you know, the Rob Wheeler story, you know, Rob Wheeler, that year on the state test, I probably would have done pretty bad. I wasn't prepared. He motivated me to do better in the future. But that year, I might have made him look like a bad teacher. Mm -hmm. So they were saying, you know, these kids, you know, they got other needs. You know, sometimes, you know, when you're living in multiple homes, your homework's less than So they say, you know, and they're getting burned out. So I start explaining and talking to them, you know, this is what causes you getting too focused here. You're losing your balance. You're forgetting about your calling. You know, don't. And I thought, you know what? So that weekend, the weekend, I sat down and I wrote 55 pages from the discussions I had with burnout teachers, put together a little formula somewhat research-based, but not really, for a workshop I was going to do in class. And um, I pass it out, and we go through it. And, you know, some people, you know, decide to keep the book and, and things of that nature. And that was in 2009. 2009. I literally forget about it. Forget. I, it first was going through a local publisher, and a guy left, and then we went through a self-published group and I put it there, just print out some more copies. And um, at some point they put it on Amazon and it started selling. So someone out there found this and, and run through. But I read through it again because of this to see if, you know, and I was, I was kind of amazed at some of the stuff I knew back then. I've had more years as a principal. Um, but what really struck me was um, the amount of time at that time I really spent talking about how God had an impact on what we do. And it, it, it really hit me in the face. You know, that's what I talk about now. It's, and if, if I have time, I'd like to actually go back in and do some different things in it, you know, edit, cause you learn more, right? And people uh, become burnout because they did not get in the teaching to do paperwork. <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm not attacking paper. Paperwork's a necessary thing. Mm -hmm. but also, people that just focus on paperwork, testing and stuff. I, I, I say, you know, it's like when I die, 
and, and they read my obituary. So here lies John Maynard. He's a great principal. He had the best bar graphs we ever saw. His reports were on time. Yeah. And, uh, he, he did a great job checking the dress code. That's not my impact. But we get lost in that. And with mandates coming, people look at school and they think it's like a factory. It's in a factory. We can't mass produce the same student. Everyone's different. God has given them a soul. God has given them intuition. They have different interests. It's like if I pump enough math and reading in you and I stay away from the other subjects, all of a sudden I'm going to create all these math reading people. No. So I, I'm one of those people to believe that, you know, teachers got into this because they want to help people discover their gifts. Well, you hey, everybody, Brian Sexton. Have you ever wanted to live a bucket list life? Or if you're a business owner, have you ever wanted to incentivize your team in unbelievable ways? I have got just the thing for you. You need to contact my friend, Brad Norwood, with Dream It Pro Professional Events. Brad's been a guest here on the Intentional Encourager podcast, and I can tell you he has helped numerous companies achieve unbelievable things through experience travel. Experiences are what people want. They want to know how they can live incredible bucket list lives as well, too. And Brad can help you with both of those things. I can't give you any better encouragement than to give Brad and his team a call right now at 479-466-6907 or go to www.dreamitpro.com. And when you get there, click on events and you are going to see some unbelievable once-in-a-lifetime experiences. And I promise you this, unlike plaques, awards, trophies, things like that, experiences, and trips like these don't burn up in a fire. Again, go to www.dreamitpro.com today. And now let's get back to more great conversation here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. John, you were talking earlier. Forgive me for jumping in there. You, you talked earlier about the drills that that coach huck put you guys through mm -hmm. whether you were a big man or you were a guard or you played on the wing everybody did the same drill mm -hmm. because it would be dumb to say okay um we're gonna we're gonna take we're gonna take you and randall and perky and we're gonna put you guys off to the side and all you're gonna do is just throw the ball off the glass the whole time and we're going to take todd and brian and mike and marvin and and um and other guys and we're gonna we're gonna take them and put them over here and we're gonna we're gonna take these other guys and we're gonna put them over here it would be dumb to do that for a whole practice because then you don't get the competition you don't get the other, you know, you want to take the big guys through ball handling drills. Right. You may, you may need your, your big guy to come outside and handle the ball in certain situations. You want your guards, even your little guys, you want your guards to do rebounding drills right. because they may need to go inside and do rebounding drills. And what you just said is so key there. Because we're trying to pump out a certain level of test score instead of saying, well, John, you communicate really well. And maybe, Brian, you're more of a strategic thinker. I want to do things that, that pull those gifts out instead of saying, well, Brian, you and John got to be just alike. Mm -hmm. You know, you're in the same grade, you're the same class. You guys got to be just alike. So you're just how, about, yeah, how do we education? Right. How do we change that thinking in education so, to to, so, to make it that? Yeah, so go ahead. That I was looking at, you know, um, I was when I was gonna work on my doctorate, this would be my thesis, would be looking at time. This is just this is somewhat anecdotal, and this is me looking at the history of education, how things work. But you look at the time of the greatest the greatest innovation we've had 
and and what I did was I looked at you know you know during the industrial revolution or you know during the Renaissance period for instance my favorite time and you start looking at how society moved forward the innovation happened you know we're always talking about we want innovation there's a, a gentleman wrote a book a few years ago called you know the world is flat and and one of the things that he said was a you know would be worth more money was ideas and innovation mm-hmm. okay so it was during the time that we taught the whole student. Now I'm gonna put this in sports terms for people to understand this. The way we approach education right now is we're so focused on testing that it would be like just going out and trying to play the football game every day and not running all the different drills, not learning all the different parts. It, it, it's it's like you go to them, you say, well, uh, we're not gonna do weightlifting for football. Would you say that? No. Mm-mm. So you got to develop the whole athlete. You got to develop their mind. You got to develop their body. Say, well, the brain is just like that. You know, for instance, handwriting, cursive handwriting. I had a huge debate about this. We're going to eliminate cursive handwriting. And I said, well, you're you're basically saying you would eliminate algebra too. What's the argument for algebra? Algebra develops a critical thinking. It helps you solve problems. It's a, it's a development from, it's just like lifting weights for football, right? Mm-hmm. You go around now and people say, well, I'm not using algebra now. I say, well, no, maybe not the algebraic equations. It depends on your field. But the way of thinking is there. You develop that mind. So when you do cursive handwriting, you're activating the creative side and the analytical side of your brain at the same time. So you're you're having to learn how to create these new letters, but you also, it's letters and it's analyzing. And it's a lot of things going on in the brain. It's firing on all levels. Well, if you want creative thinkers who are also analytical, why wouldn't you have art? Why wouldn't you have music? Why wouldn't you promote those? Yes, you could be very successful at music. And they go, well, they're not going to be a musician. Well, maybe not, but that's where their brain is. And, and, and the research shows that people that are in band do better at math. <laughs> yeah. It's about developing the whole brain and the whole person. And, and I, I think that's what you're discussing when you talk about basketball. But we, we've tried to focus on certain things. And good teachers, teachers, I don't want to say just good teachers, but most teachers that are out there know in their heart that we're leaving things out, that we're, we're getting in such a hurry to meet standards that we are not getting enough time or we're not putting enough time into doing what really we need to do it doesn't matter how much knowledge you set in front of a person if they're not motivated to do it, it doesn't matter otherwise i could just throw a dictionary by and say here you now know the english language mm-hmm. yeah. if you don't pick that dictionary up take time to learn some of those words if you don't take time to read a book if you don't take some excitement about algebra and it becomes you know suffrage for you do not learn we're forgetting that the key to this is to have motivated people. Why was Coach Huckabee such a good coach? We mentioned him earlier. I don't tell you why he's a good coach. It wasn't his understanding and depth of knowledge about basketball. He'll tell you, I didn't play basketball. We ran the same basic plays everyone else did. He taught us the same basic. It was his energy. And he developed, he knew I had a temper and he knew how to make me use that temper in a good way to get rebound. He knew what Randall needed to work on. He knew not only from a skill point of view, but a personal point of view. He knew I could not help him if I was in the office in trouble. So he helped me with my discipline. He taught me how to talk to people and not get mad. See, that, that's where we're getting, we're getting lost. I think people are starting to see it. You hear things out there about social emotional. You hear people talking about, you know, we need to work with the person that they're trying to figure out, you know, how to deal with kids by not suspending them now and, and punitive measures. And so we're getting, getting back to, oh, this maybe is not about just pumping reading and math and science. And yeah, that's right. It's about that's right. finding the people and helping well, them find themselves. And Huck always made us look him in the eye, whether, <laughs> whether he was teaching or coaching, you know, every time I had a conversation with him, he always made eye contact with me yeah. and that was so huge for, for me as a young person. 
I've got to ask you two more questions. I, re- okay. I and forgive me for going a couple minutes over. I got to ask you a couple more questions. How would John Maynard today mentor a young John Maynard starting in teaching 20, 25 years ago when you got into teaching? How, how would you mentor and coach you back then as you were getting started in the profession? Oh, that's excellent. That's an excellent question. I, I would remind myself, or I would, because I have had ups and downs in this. Uh, one of the reasons I can talk even better about burnout is, you know, I kind of almost experienced myself. You know, I started having, you know, when you when you struggle really hard to do something, and you know, like for instance, well, South High School, I wanted so bad to bring back all the school spirit. I wanted everyone to feel successful. I still do. And I wanted everyone to be have access to college. We, you know, we had every sophomore taking ACT. You want to see those success stories, and then when you see one not quite make it, it hurts you internally. And but it took a while for me to realize that they come back. Like there was, there's was a student I don't want to say her name, but she had this 24 on ACT. She had moved to multiple states. Uh, I was like, you need to go to college. We did everything we need to do to get her in, and she left. And she had a kid, and another kid, and another kid, and another kid, and went to college. And was struggling. Uh, saw not too long ago where, you know, she went ahead and went back. She'd had the ACT in her pocket and she's going to school. So those lessons came later. So I would tell my young self, look, stay after. You're doing the right thing. Keep, keep caring. It's about the kids. You know, when you're out in the morning and you're dropping coats off uh, to kids on the corner because they don't have coats. Because when I was in the city, I, I knew my kids in my class didn't have coats because I go make home visits. And I would see where they live. Keep that up. Don't let people tell you you're a failure because maybe a test score wasn't there or something like that. These people are going to thank you later. You know, I'm getting my rewards now. I'm seeing these people. I've had kids that were in elementary school that are grownups now. And that's what I would tell teachers now. You are doing the right thing. If your heart is there, you know, we can get better at teaching you. I can show you how to use a smart board. We can come up with lessons together. You know, we can copy each other. We can do all that. I'm not going to punish you. I'm not here to, I'm not, I'm here to coach you, right? We're here to coach. We're going to get better. But I just want to know your heart's in the right place. If you want to teach for me, you can, I don't care. If you've ever, I mean, some of the best teachers I've had never finished school. My grad, my, my father was a great teacher. He didn't even, go, he didn't even make it past uh, middle school. Yeah. If your heart's in the right place and you care about kids, let's keep that. And now I can help you with the other stuff. And I would tell myself that, you know, stay true to that. And that's what I, that's what I'm trying to, you know, it was nice to reread what I wrote because it kind of reminded me of who I am. So I kind of taught myself a lesson in the future because it's, it's been tough this last few years. Yeah. Man, that is so good. And and you took me, you you took us where I wanted you to go with encouragement for teachers. And, and, and again, I love what you said there. The greatest teachers have a heart for students. Right. And, and it's so beautiful. John, tell folks how they can connect with you. If there's teachers out there or just people that say, Hey, this is just powerful conversation. I want to connect with you. How do folks get connected with you? Well, I mean, of course, you can you can find me on on Facebook under John L. Maynard. I have people that will message me. I have an email that is uh, that like in the actually in the book. I have an old email. I don't know why it's even sitting there, but it's a John Larkin Maynard at gmail.com. and you can email. I have people contact me all the time there. It's a, so it's my full name. My middle name's Larkin, like Barry Larkin, L-A-R-K-I-N. I think it's the one I actually sent you. So they, they can ask. And uh, I mean, I, I don't I don't even really care if I sell a book. I really don't. Uh, I do workshops still. I go talk to people all the time. I'm on the High Leadership Advisory Council. I go up there and I do workshops. Don't charge a dime. Uh, I enjoy motivating teachers and waking them up waking them up and i won't tell you this one about a teacher okay because i know there's a principal out there that's listening to me right now i went into a school and the first thing you always do when you go to school is you don't tell you who's wrong and all this you know well you need to listen to that 
And I had them tell me that this teacher had to go. I hadn't even met the, you know, I never judged people. I'm like, well, you know, just because they say you're good or bad don't mean you're either. You know, so I said, I, I'd rather just leave me alone and don't tell me about what people do. And I said, no, you're going to see. And I was like, well, I just let me make my own decision. So it came time to evaluate. And I went out in that classroom and I was watching what was going on in the room and it was a mess. And I thought, wow, they're right. This is bad. I was really concerned about the discipline and the organization of the room wasn't there. And then she opened her mouth. And when she opened her mouth, all the students tuned in. She had the most wonderful personality and the kids loved her. At that moment, she could have told them anything and they would have believed it, anything. So we, we go to the evaluation and I have my notes and she says, I know, and she has a contract in front of, you know, you deal with union. And she says, I know I get so many write-ups. And I said, no, 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 I don't want to talk about that. She says, well, I, you know, I know that I'm a, I've struggled for it. And I said, I want to talk about that. I said, I want to talk about something I saw. I said, when you opened your mouth, you had complete control of those kids. They loved it. You could say anything to them. Like they were kind of perfect. Well, yeah, all that, my kids always love it. I said, yeah, you're a natural teacher. I said, you've got a gift. She'd never heard that. No one ever complimented. They were stuck on this rubric over here. I said, you know, what we need to do is coach you up. I said, name me a teacher in a building that you respect, that you know runs a class the way that, you you know, maybe I expect you to do. She said the name. I said, I'll tell you what, for the next week, I'll take your class and you go hang out with that teacher. You take all the notes you want. And then after a while of practicing, I'll take her class. She'll come visit you. And we'll do that. Mm-hmm. That was her evaluation. I coached her. Took about a year, practice, going in and say, hey, I see you did. Yeah, I, I put up this card system over here. The kids love it. They're great. They're doing great, aren't you guys? Room's more organized. Things get better. Starts becoming the most uh, preferred teacher. People wanted her. Parents started writing notes. I like to have this teacher. You know, that's a person people were going to count out because they didn't meet what was on the paper, the rubric. It was connecting to the person and bringing that, that forward. So what I tell principals is you expect teachers to work with kids who are struggling. You expect them to lift them up to pass your test. Okay, and test, passing tests are important. You got to have an ACT score. I'm not against tests. But people sometimes think I'm against that. No, tests are important. It's a tool. We have to do well tests. I just had a five-star here. We all, My schools always do well tests. But the emphasis on the person to get there, okay? So I, I, I'm not saying that. But when we took time to coach her like I would a student who's struggling, and I do what I expect her to do, mm-hmm. now I'm the teacher. And a lot of these administrators, and, and I, I tell them, you are not doing what you're asking other people to do. It's your job. You know, really, you're not firing people. It's hard to get teachers. You need to make them better. You need to help them to be better. That's your job. So I believe that part of the reason teachers get burnt out is they they don't have anybody supporting them. They don't get coaching. They get left on islands and then judged for what they do. They've had zero help. It'd be like going into a basketball game and no one ever shows you how to dribble. That's what Mm -hmm. we do to teachers. We hire them. We hand them a scorebook. We give them the keys. We said, there's your classroom. Now go. And then we come in later with a pad, not talking to them, taking notes, giving you a score. You're not effective. When have you ever taught them? When have you ever helped them? Yeah, exactly. It, it's like NFL teams that, that draft quarterbacks. And they're like, well, you know, we got to cut this guy because he's not, he's a bust. Well, did he get the coaching he needed? Did did he was he in the right system? Was was he, you know, and and I think about I think about a guy like like Joe Burrow for the Bengals. Very talented young man. He probably thrives in a lot of systems. But the thing that that has really made him take that level is 
he has been around coaches. He was around at LSU and with the Bengals that said, man, we, we don't need to tell you what to do. We just need to give you the freedom to lead this team and to do what, what you do well. And, and I love that example. That is so beautiful. My John, man, we could go for a while, but I want to respect your time and the audience's time. And, Man, this has been a powerful conversation. I really appreciate you. Well, it was good to connect with you again. And thank you for joining yeah. me on the Intentional Courage Podcast. Uh, I hope we add some value to what you're doing there. So it's good work. Keep that up. I Remember, appreciate this was a calling. I appreciate that very much. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for joining me again on the Intentional Courage Podcast. My thanks as always to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Means. And of course, the ultimate thanks goes to the Lord Jesus Christ, who provides intentional encouragement every day through his word. If you're not subscribed to the Intentional Encourager podcast, hit the subscribe button wherever you get podcasts so you don't miss an exciting episode where you can get encouraged and stay encouraged. And remember, anyone, anywhere, at any time, any place can be an intentional encourager.